Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about anime episodes 22 through 24, which are manga chapters 46 through 52. And today, we are going to be diving into one of my favorite episodes in the entire series, and what I would call the first iconic One Piece moment, as well as the introduction to the main. Antagonist of this arc, in addition to the horrors of what awaits them in the Grand Line, this is going to be a long air episode as I've got a lot to say apparently. So let's start off with the synopsis. Luffy is still stuck at the Baratie, serving as a chore boy, and it's been four days into his repayment of his debt for the damages. And then all of a sudden, Gein comes back. This time with his entire crew and his captain Dong Krieg, hoping to get food, as Krieg and the crew are also starving. And Sanji and Zeph, unwilling to let people go hungry, they feed them, knowing full well that Krieg will eventually turn on them. And in fact, he does. During all this, Nami steals the Going Merry and makes off somewhere, seemingly betraying the Straw Hats. Now it turns into a struggle to protect the Baratier from Krieg, as he wants it as his new ship to enter the Grand Line again. In addition to Zeph's logbook of his journey through the Grand Line, as the conflict is about to begin, they all get interrupted by a man in a tiny boat wielding a giant sword. Who proceeds to cut Krieg's giant galleon ship into pieces? This man turns out to be the man Zoro has been looking for all this time, the greatest swordsman in the world, the Hawkeye Mihawk. Zoro duels him, but is completely outmatched and defeated. But not before declaring one day to defeat Mihawk and become the greatest swordsman. Mihawk, impressed by Zoro, leaves. And Krieg now refocuses attention to the Baratie, and it's up to Luffy and Sanji to defend it. While Zoro, Usopp, Johnny, and Yosok head off to catch Nami. So the differences. There were actually a surprising number of differences in this part, way more than I remembered. Actually, it was interesting to go back and look at these because I honestly forgot about most of them. Many of these are just small little details that are just omitted from the anime, but still. Oddly enough, add a little bit of depth to the characters and the story, and then some are just pretty inconsequential things. But they were probably left out for pacing. So the big one is in the manga when Sanji is trying to feed the rest of Don Krieg's men. In the manga, Sanji has guns pointed at him. However, in the anime, he has these giant spoons and fork spears pointed at him by all the other chefs. This is a curious change, as I mean, both work fine, and even in the manga later on, you see the chefs using these oversized utensils as weapons. So I don't think it was done for censorship, as One Piece has never had an issue with guns. I'm more inclined to think this was an artistic continuity choice, as it probably seems weird to have them use guns in just this one scene, and then never use them when trying to defend and fight against Krieg. And then just before that, there's this small little panel of Sanji flirting with a woman named Roxanne、uh, as she enters the restaurant, just after he's done flirting with Nami, just to kind of emphasize his sort of womanizing ways. But obviously, that was left out of the anime. And then another really curious change is that in the manga, only two days pass since when they arrive at the Baratier and when Krieg arrives. But in the anime, it's four days, and I'm not sure what the deal was for this change. This scene where that's mentioned is also slightly different too. 
There's no scene of Luffy taking out the trash and the crew complaining about still being stuck there for four days. Instead, in the manga, it just cuts to everyone's reaction at Krieg's galleon ship arriving. Luffy and Sanji are inside the restaurant while Zoro, Nami, and Usopp are on them going merry, with Johnny and Yosak still recovering from their beating at the hands of full body. And then there's also another weird change is that during the whole conversation with Don Krieg, Inside the restaurant, Zoro and Usopp are seated at the table in the manga. Instead, in the anime, they're standing on the stairs. Again, I have no idea or the reasoning behind this change. And then there's a small joke cut out too when Zeph reveals the name of Hawkeye. And Usopp says Hawkeye's name as if he was shocked and knows who he is by his reputation. But then it cuts to him casually asking Who's that to Luffy? And then Luffy responding, no idea. But also the chefs mention that they've actually seen Mihawk dine there at the Buratia and get drunk off of wine in the past. Both of these scenes are not actually in the anime. And I I understand why they cut them. They're just kind of like offhanded details. Then we get another big difference is the flashback of Nami stealing the Mary. And it's a bit longer in the manga, actually. Johnny and Yosok actually comment a bit more on the Arlong poster but again in the manga we still don't know it's Arlong so they talk about how this pirate has been pretty dormant for a while but it looks like he's starting to cause trouble again which is probably why Nami decides at this moment to make her move and leave but that's never made clear in the anime also at this time it shows her bringing aboard all of Johnny and Yosak's treasure to the Mary effectively stealing it In the manga, not only did she steal from the Straw Hats, but Johnny and Yosak as well, which is kind of an interesting detail that they left out. Then one moment we don't quite yet see in the anime, but we do see here in the manga, is Nami's reaction to leaving the Straw Hats. And this scene actually is kind of wedged in just before Zoro's fight with Mihawk. Um, I won't really go into details as I don't want to spoil it because we eventually do get to see this scene. It's just placed a little later in a future episode. Then finally, one small detail omitted from the anime is during the brief moment during Zoro's fight, he remembers not only his promise to Quina and that whole flashback sequence starts happening again in quick succession, but in the manga, there's also a small memory he recalls of him meeting Johnny and Yosak and them introducing themselves to him. And then also, (laughs) every time Zoro gets wounded in the manga, there's way more blood. So with that out of the way, let's get into my thoughts on this set of episodes. So the episode picks up right where we left off with Sanji arguing with Zeph about Sanji being unneeded because he's always causing trouble, but Sanji stubbornly wants to stay again because it seems like he has some reason or even a debt that he owes and feels obligated to stay. And then we launch into more straw hat fun with these rapid fire interactions between them all as we get Sanji fawning over Nami, giving her free food and great service while Usopp and Zoro are made to pay. (laughs) And Usopp commanding Zoro to fight Sanji and Zoro just getting annoyed and telling Usopp to fight for himself. Then Nami using her feminine voice to manipulatively ask everyone not to fight over her and Usopp's reaction being like we'd ever fight for you. The way Hiroaki Hirota plays this is so good i mean how he goes from the lovey-dovey sanji voice with the hearts in his eyes to the abrupt disinterested face 
and <laughs> reminding Zoro and Usopp to pay is so good. I think this is one instance where the comedy is better in the anime because of how quick it up it changes. Like his face and the voice is just so good. So after this, four days pass as they're still stuck at the Baratier with Luffy still working off his debt. But then Don Krieg's giant galleon ship comes up with Guinan Krieg asking for food as he's starving too. He promises not to attack the restaurant after he gets the food, but we all know he's lying. But Sanji being Sanji, of course, gives him food. But during this, we get Carne uh, giving us some exposition on Krieg and how he's considered the current ruler of the East Blue and is the most foulest underhanded pirate in the East Blue. Krieg is always an interesting comparison to Luffy as an antagonist because Krieg is a villain that relies on deception and dirty tricks to win as well as to gain power and because he represents this dishonest man who doesn't really stand for anything he lacks that simple drive and ambition that Luffy has and it's why he failed in the Grand Line I feel like and why we think Luffy will succeed. I like the message here that there's just no way a man who tries to cheat his way to the top could ever get there because when you start to go up against the really tough obstacles you don't have the mental resolve to stand your ground and stick to your ambition and you'll lose every time if you're cutting and running anytime things get difficult. It also highlights cheating may get you short-term benefits, but because you never had to actually face adversity and overcome it through hard work, you're weak underneath mentally, and as well as literally in Krieg's case with all the armor and weapons he's hiding behind. And hilariously, he does the pirate version of trying to steal someone's notes and doesn't want to put the work in to pass the test when he threatens to steal Zeph's logbook. <laughs> I always found that really funny. Once Krieg gets to full strength, as we expected, he turns on Sanji and even on Ging a bit and demands food for the remainder of his crew. The other chefs refuse and Sanji tries to cook them the food however the other chefs stop him. And this scene really highlights just how committed to his personal code Sanji is and how he's prepared to take the consequences of his said code. This is one of Sanji's defining traits, his strict adherence to both his codes as a cook, to feed anyone in need, and one that's only sort of hinted at for now, but I'll mention here, is his code of chivalry, and his strict code not to harm a woman. These get explored more as the series goes on. However, in a surprise move to everyone, but not to pretty much most of the viewers, Zeph makes a massive bag of food and tells Creek to feed his men. But then we do get a surprise reveal that Zeph was in fact a pirate himself that used to be quite notorious and pretty strong that had successfully sailed in the Grand Line and coming back, going by the nickname the Red Leg Zeph. Which I gotta say is a pretty badass pirate name. And I've got a bit more to say about this in the spoilers section. Not only that, we learn he's also got a log of his journeys in the Grand Line. This next scene is one I really like as it reaffirms what we already knew. Even though Zeph and Sanji seem to have a very contentious relationship, they both have similar values on what it means to be a chef of the sea. And that he not only approves of Sanji's actions, but respects them. And Sanji himself, as he and Zeph, are the only two that know what it's like to be left starving on the sea. Here we start to see some more foreshadowing of the debt that he owes Zeph. And I believe it has something to do with the fact that they were both in a situation that caused him to be stranded somewhere without food or water. The music here is also used really awesomely as well. I always get chills when I hear that tune. After that, 
we get this awesome line from Sanji to Gin that he'll feed anyone that needs food, but once they're fed, they're just plundering pirates and he'll not hesitate to beat each one of them if they threaten the restaurant. Damn. Gin, not wanting anyone to get hurt, tells everyone to run and to sort of emphasize the point that they're up against Dong Krieg, a man that is pretty strong, but in order to hammer home the point, he also explains to them what happened to them in the Grand Line. He describes that they ran into a man with hawk-like eyes, and he destroyed a fleet of 50 ships single-handedly. In a pretty chilling story, with everyone but Zeph visibly shook by this revelation, Zoro then reveals that this Hawkeye is the man he's searching for and is the greatest swordsman in the world. Hearing this news only gets both he and Luffy even more excited to get to the Grand Line. Sanji seeing their eagerness to pursue these outlandish dreams calls them out for how foolish it is, adding to his growing resistance to going out to the sea. But then the scene shows Zeph grinning a bit after seeing Sanji's reaction, as if he knows this may not be how Sanji actually feels. It's all been very subtle up to this point, but anytime Luffy and Zoro talk about pursuing their dreams, it makes a point of Sanji looking intently at them as if to indicate he is intrigued by these people or the idea of following these crazy dreams, but something is stopping him from voicing what he really thinks. With Krieg's men fully recovered, he orders them to attack the Baratia, but before that, we see that the Hawkeye has followed them all the way back here, and during the commotion, just slices through the galleon ship into pieces in an instant, in what has to be one of the coolest character intros ever. For the last couple episodes, we've built up this character to the point where he's seen like a, like an endgame boss, as in we shouldn't even meet someone like this till towards the end of the series. And here he is, and his first act is to cut a massive ship to pieces with no effort, and then just floating on up, sitting cross-legged in a tiny one-man boat with these green flames coming out of these candles on either side. I remember when I first read this moment, at this point, I had no idea what was going to happen, which is absolutely glued to the pages. From here, all hell breaks loose. The music swells with the reveal that Nami has kicked Johnny and Yosak overboard, stole the Mary, and made off with the treasure, all the while Zoro coming face-to-face with Hawkeye. And we all know he's going to try and challenge him, along with the fact that Krieg is still there as a threat, and that's where... Episode 23 ends. It's absolutely insane. Alright, episode 24. Here it is. The one I've been waiting to discuss for a while now, as you all know. We start with a slight flashback with a scene showing what happened with Nami just a couple minutes before Hawkeye shows up. Something I want to point out here, and it's pretty obvious, but... Even though she seems to be putting on a happy face, the fact that she's betraying the Straw Hats, it's clearly weighing on her... When she speaks, her eyes get obscured to not show her true emotions here. Luffy hearing this tells Zoro and Usopp to go after her, and Zoro at first protesting that they don't need her, but Luffy insists. Luffy seems to have this innate ability to judge people, and he clearly, as we the viewer know as well, that Nami is a good person and is worth going after. After looking at each other for a bit, Zoro realizes that this is an important thing to Luffy, and even if it's one of his bullheaded whims, being the loyal crew member Zoro is, he relents and agrees to go after her. This scene doesn't really seem like much now, but honestly looking back, I just like seeing how, even from the very beginning, just how much trust and loyalty they both have in each other, 
And even if it's a stupid order to Zoro, he still respects his captain and follows those orders to a T. However, Zoro seeing Hawkeye, immediately all his attention is turned to him, and Zoro explains his name is Mihawk, and is, he is the man he's been searching for. This is another huge win in the character design department on Oda's part, because holy crap, Mihawk looks so badass with the black and maroon color scheme, the big hat, and the flowing cloak looking jacket. Not to mention the face with that sharp goatee and those famous piercing hawk eyes. This is not just a man. He looks like a supernatural being, like a monster or a vampire. Oh, and you can't forget that massive black sword on his back looks awesome as well. And his opening line is classic. His response to Krieg asking why he's come after them again. And he just goes, I was bored and looking to pass time. Like, how freaking badass is that? Zoro then shows up to challenge him, and the hype surrounding this was incredible. To see Zoro already fight his goal, I mean, Pirate Hunter Zoro versus Hawkeye Mihawk. There's a moment where Usopp warns Luffy that the Mary is almost out of sight, but Luffy doesn't seem to respond. And that right there I love because just a moment ago he was freaking out that they were about to lose the Mary and Nami, but knowing how important this is to Zoro, Luffy um, in an almost uncharacteristic show of maturity, just like Zoro showed loyalty to Luffy just a bit ago, Luffy is now patiently watching and waiting for Zoro. This whole event was just crazy to me that we were witnessing something like this so early in the series. Not to mention, up to this point, Zoro is a character we've had absolute confidence in his ability to win the battle. But just based on Mihawk's appearance, demeanor, his power displayed so far, and not to mention the amount of buildup of the other characters describing him up till now, there's this uneasy tension that Zoro may not come out of this one victorious. As the conversation between Zoro and Mihawk goes on, it doesn't help to alleviate this uneasiness. Then Mihawk pulls that tiny sword out and now we're like, oh crap, Zoro is screwed. One of my favorite quotes from Mihawk is here, the, I'm not a foolish beast who goes all out to hunt a rabbit. It is just classic and kind of a, actually a good quote to live by, really. Another interesting note here, before the fighting starts, Mihawk states that the East Blue is the weakest of the four oceans outside of the Grand Line, which starts to make us feel like our protagonists are even weaker than we may actually think. And I'll get to this point a little bit more further on in the episode. So the fighting begins with Zoro launching with Onigiri. A move up till now we've seen one hit KO every opponent. But Mihawk stops it in its tracks with that tiny sword with almost no effort. Zoro seeing this begins to doubt himself and is in denial about how far he is from his dreams. He starts to swing wildly at Mihawk while Mihawk just blocks or avoids every single attack effortlessly and at this point it's a bit shocking to see a character like Zoro get absolutely overpowered to the point where it's not even an even match exhausted Zoro is barely able to stay standing Mihawk asks what it is he desires to do with strength despite being so weak and then this next moment I've always really liked Johnny and Yusak hearing Zoro being called weak and insulted, attempt to jump in to defend Zoro's honor, but Luffy grabs them and tells them to wait patiently while also himself visibly struggling 
to not interfere as he's grinning while he's saying don't interfere to Johnny Yusuk. This moment is so great because it shows that not only Luffy values his own dreams, but also values the dreams of his crew and will do anything to honor that. I think this moment resonates so well because Luffy is generally seen as this dim-witted simpleton who has very selfish desires, but he will have these moments of profound maturity and insight which really help to create like a three-dimensional character even for someone as simple as Luffy and it's really great to see. Seeing this also just highlights and contrasts with Don Krieg and the differing philosophies on how each captain treats their crew members. Something that I'll explore a little bit more in a future episode when we get to the conflict between Luffy and Don Krieg. And then from here, we see everything go semi-silent and then it gets washed over with this black and white color scheme while Zoro prepares for another one of his signature attacks that has been shown to also be a one-hit kill, the Toragari, as well as the quote from Luffy when he first joined the crew, as if to say Zoro is thinking that if he can't beat Mihawk, he doesn't belong with the Straw Hats. But as soon as he launches Toragari, he's immediately stabbed in the chest with blood dripping down to the deck. But Zoro won't yield, even when Mihawk warns him that if he pushes any further, it will pierce his heart and kill him. Zoro still refuses to yield, citing that if he does, this defeat will render all of his past promises meaningless and chooses death rather than defeat. Mihawk seeing this finally starts to see that maybe this kid isn't some brash, foolish pirate just looking to make a name for himself, but someone who has an incredible spirit and potential. He asks Zoro for his name and introduces himself with his full name, Dracul Mihawk, and draws the big sword on his back finally and prepares to fight him seriously, as Zoro has finally earned Mihawk's respect. Zoro then prepares for a new move, the Three Sword Style Secret Technique, aka the ultimate move for the Three Sword Style. The most powerful move in his arsenal, the 3000 Worlds, and this moment is even given the widescreen treatment as it goes all letterbox format to kind of emphasize the, the moment even more. But after a few seconds, we see Zoro bleeding and his two black swords have been utterly shattered to pieces. This is where one of the most iconic images of One Piece occurs. At this moment, Mihawk is readying for his final blow to finish him off. However, Zoro sheathes his Wado Ichimonji, turns to face Mihawk with his arms outstretched. And Mihawk is visibly confused by this, but Zoro then has that epic line... Scars on the back are a swordsman's shame, to which Mihawk responds admirable and takes this massive slash at Zoro's torso with just blood spewing everywhere. With Luffy and everyone absolutely horrified along with us, the viewers, I remember I couldn't turn the pages fast enough when I was reading this for the first time. I honestly thought for a split second that maybe Zoro might actually die. I mean, that scream by Luffy is bone chilling just having seen his best friend cut down. We do immediately hear that Mihawk had no intention of killing him yet. But what's interesting here is Sanji's strong reaction to seeing Zoro having just seemingly died for his dreams, especially with how Sanji viewed how absurd Zoro's dream was, yelling that it should be easy to throw away your dreams instead of risking your life for them. This clearly stuck a, struck a nerve with Sanji, as it's almost as if he's talking about himself in his own dreams. Luffy then charges in to avenge Zoro, but clearly Mihawk is also way out of Luffy's league as well, and dodges the attack effortlessly again. 
but reassures him that he left Zoro alive, as well as prays him for patiently watching and waiting for the duel to complete. Johnny, Yosaka, and Usopp get Zoro aboard the boat to start first aid, but then the other component of this iconic moment occurs here. The image of Zoro willingly getting slashed by Mihawk is an iconic image, but what makes this moment iconic as a whole is the speech that's given by Zoro here. While still on the brink of unconsciousness, Mihawk declares that it is too early for Zoro to die and that he should learn and grow stronger, and during that time, he'll wait until that day comes so that he can face him again. To this, everyone around is pretty impressed at what Zoro has just achieved. Zoro then regains his consciousness and picks up the Wado Ichimonji and yells to Luffy, recalling their conversation when he first joined the crew, how it, it'll be a problem if the swordsman of the future Pirate King isn't the greatest in the world, calling back to one of the first things Luffy said to Zoro. But from there, with obvious frustration and tears, he boldly declares that from here on out, that he'll never lose again until he beats Mihawk and becomes the greatest swordsman in the world. This moment is so powerful and memorable so for so many reasons. The music here is perfect, not to mention Kazuya Nakai's voice acting here is incredible. Being able to capture Zoro's vulnerability, but also still maintains that, that stoic strength that Zoro has. There's just something powerful seeing one of the strongest and most stoic characters completely broken down in tears, but still have the hope and optimism in such an overwhelming defeat. It's just something I had never seen up till now in a story like this, or any story really. You just rarely see these macho comic book hero characters break down in tears quite like this, and yet it doesn't seem weird or out of place. Of course, I look at this scene and many other scenes in One Piece and how to deal with failure or defeat in my real life, you know? It's okay to mourn a failure or defeat, but you can also take that defeat and use it for motivation and fuel to keep you going and do better the next time. And that's something that I like to live by right now. Lastly, I also want to mention, this is the first time that we see a Straw Hat member declare that Luffy will become the Pirate King, and of course Zoro will be the first one to put his absolute loyalty in his captain. A significant moment for each crew member, and one that I look forward to every single time. This moment does so much for the story as it highlights this idea of just how big the world is and how small our characters are in it. It gives, it gives us a sense of scale in terms of power dynamics and this fight just goes to show us the gap is terrifyingly huge for our main characters. It sets up our expectations of what kind of obstacles await our characters and how much progress they still have to make to get to the ultimate goal. It gets you excited and your imagination starts to run wild trying to see how they're ever going to get strong enough to contend with someone like Mihawk and also beyond. It's just incredible to see a character like Mihawk who's just thoroughly beaten our main characters and still gives this much praise. For me, this moment made me become way more invested in the story because of how much I felt Zoro's loss here. The way this moment was set up, built up, and executed really did an amazing job selling the gravity of what we just saw in relation to the overall story. But it's also a great piece of world building too, just kind of expanding the world beyond just the East Blue and in terms of what kind of monsters live in the Grand Line, it just kind of makes you, yeah, like I said, it makes your imagination just go wild seeing what other scary opponents are out there. And that is why 
In my opinion, this is One Piece's first iconic moment. Last thing I want to mention here is, so Luffy makes a deal with Ziff that if he gets rid of Krieg, his debt will be paid off. And these last two shots are so weird. They're just still shots with voices over them. It's like they used too much of their time and budget with the Mihawk and Zoro duel. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, we still have these last two shots we need to animate. Screw it. Just animate one frame and we'll have the actors talk over it. They don't even bother to animate their mouths. It's literally a still image with disembodied voices over them. I mean, that kind of laziness is starting to creep its way into the series more and more. But that's just really a minor nitpick in an otherwise amazing and iconic episode. And that was episodes 22 through 24. Like I said, episode 24 is one of the better episodes in the entire series. And we get a taste of just how grand and epic One Piece can be. Episode 24 and the rest of this arc benefit greatly from all the great world building and setup from episodes 22 and 23. I can't tell you how much fun I had talking about this episode with you all and can't wait to get into the next set of episodes where we see the battle for Baratier begin. If you enjoyed this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at SunnyGoPodcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. So check those out. As always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast and hope to see you on the next episode or stay tuned for the spoiler section. See ya! So spoiler sections, just a few things I guess I wanted to talk about. I love that once Sanji becomes a wanted man himself and gets his own bounty, his nickname becomes the Black Leg Sanji, which is an obvious homage to Zeph's pirate nickname, the Red Leg Zeph, because Sanji's boot never gets bloody, (laughs) which kind of is weird. I guess he just kicks with so much force there is no blood, but pretty soon they'll have to like update that nickname to like Fire Leg Sanji with a Diablo Jambe. I always have a hard time saying that. Is it Diablo Jambe or Diablo Jambu? I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) It's also fun to see this early on how the Grand Line is described. And definitely the Grand Line lives up to its reputation. But also somehow it doesn't as well at the same time. It's just that while the Grand Line is the incredible, scary, and dangerous place with the giant monsters, most of the Shibukai, the emperors the stronger marines, the difficult navigation, and the unusual and unpredictable weather patterns, and then just general weird shit that's found in the Grand Line. But then there are also just regular normal citizens making their homes and living their lives there just as well. It's also funny to see, compared to what we have seen thus far with Kaido and Big Mom, or the marine admirals, and even the other Shibukai, Mihawk kind of seems tame now in comparison. Of course, this isn't the last we'll see of Mihawk, but he has shown up way more than I ever thought. And the most surprising thing is the fact that he takes Zoro on in uh, during the two-year time skip to train him. I mean, now that's confidence right there, to train someone who's actively gunning for your seat as the best. And this is also when Takeshi Aono was still voicing Mihawk, and I miss him as Mihawk. And nothing against Hirohiko Kakegawa since Aono's passing in 2012 
as he's done a great job too as Mihawk, but there's just something about Ono's voice that's just Mihawk to me. And I mean, many people will say, oh, it's just nostalgia, but with characters like Smoker and Jinbei, I actually like their current voice actors more than their original ones before they passed away. Um, which is, you know, an unfortunate side effect of having a series go on for more than 20-some years. You're going to have some of the older veteran voice actors just pass away due to age. I mean, actors who were in their 60s at the at the beginning of the series are now into their 80s. And while, you know, I don't want One Piece to end, it is kind of scary to think that, you know, Tanaka Mayumi is definitely older. Actually, a lot of the actors are getting older, but luckily, most of them are still fairly young. But I do find that a scary proposition of not having um, Tanaka Mayumi voice Luffy especially. But I guess luckily or not luckily, it's there's been some rumors going around that in an interview, Oda Eiichiro has stated that he is planning to end One Piece in about four or five years from today, which we'll see if he sticks to that because he's done that in the past where he said he'll end up ending One Piece at a certain time, but then it goes on longer because he has more ideas. But judging by where we are and what I'm seeing in the manga right now, it kind of does seem like we are definitely getting into the final act of the One Piece story. It may be still a while, but it does seem like things are starting to come to a head and things are getting to their climax um, with the buildup, especially during this Wano arc. So that'll be really exciting to see. In any case, um, that will be it for the spoiler sections for episode eight. I want to say thank you to all those that are listening, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.